Okay, welcome to Revelations with Julian Palmer. And today, my guest is Sebastian Job, who is an honorary associate in the anthropology department at Sydney University and a teacher at NIDA, which is a performing arts school in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. The Institute of Dramatic Art, the National Institute of Dramatic Art. And what so I teach the writers there. Oh, right. Okay. What do you teach them? Uh, lately, I've been teaching them film and philosophy. Right. Which is, uh, you know, really rewarding. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your background and your research in anthropology. Sure. Um, I mean, anthropology led me to do a PhD on racist nationalism in Russia. And so I'd lived in Russia, which is connected to my backstory, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit um, because it it bears on my political interests. Um, but I ended up doing a thesis about the right, mainly because they were the ones who were most active on the street after the collapse of communism in Russia. And I actually started off doing 18 months of a PhD on the left, a comparative study of the left in Moscow and New York, both in philosophy and anthropology, somewhat ambitious project. And in the end, I thought it's much better to to try and tackle the kinds of ideas that are coming to the fore in like with most leverage, with most power. And so that was racist nationalism. And that gave me some, because I was interested in people's motivations and unconscious motivations, it kind of directed me towards the inner life and particularly where inner life is not necessarily congruent with what people are saying and what they what they think about themselves, their own self-idealizations. And it was, it was maybe an unusual topic because a lot of anthropologists end up falling in love one way or another or taking the side of the people that they study against the modern world or against Western imperialism or uh, colonialism or whatever, whereas that wasn't an option for me, but I needed to kind of make very clear to myself what were the grounds of my opposition. And, I, you know, I will say that one of the things that really came to the fore and was kind of, kind of a major kind of bone in the throat of my thesis for a long time was that I discovered that, that I'd come out of a culture which was very unclear about what were the grounds for its anti-racism. Like when push comes to shove, what, what are the grounds, the ontological grounds of your own ethical position? And unfortunately, I came, or sort of the bad news that I discovered to some degree was that a lot of people's opposition to something like racist nationalism, at, you know, in the contemporary West, let's say, is, it, it might, it does, in my view, have, have legitimacy, but it's not a legitimacy that people are clear about, and they really are reverting to a kind of group membership. You know, I think the right way because the people that I rub shoulders with that I respect think this way, and in the end you're wrong because you're in another group. And funnily enough, that reproduces a kind of racist logic. It's a right-wing logic. In yeah, that's you know? interesting. It's kind of that. like my group right or wrong. Yep. And, yep. and the basis of a genuine anti-racism, I think, which is the kind of one that psychedelic experience can potentially inform, is one that 
gets beyond the logic of my group right or wrong. Mm, mm. The, the mere contingency that I happen to be born, let's say, with this skin colour in this place. Mm. You know. But in, in Russia, there's not too many ethnic groups uh, in in Russia, as far as I know. I, I know that some Africans study in Russia, but how many uh, people of, are you you're talking about people from countries like Turkmenistan? Yeah, and... so in fact, in fact, it's a very multicultural, yeah. multiracial mm. uh, kind of civilizational zone. Mm. And I think something like 83 or something thereabout percent of the Russian Federation is ethnic Russian. Mm. But you have historically... Uh, especially since the sort of the, the massive expansion of Slavs and Rus uh, out of Muscovy into, you know, as part of the European expansions from the 1600s on, you you have a lot of other peoples being brought into that sort of that that power field and that linguistic field, and mm. and those peoples are, I, I think, accepted in principle. Right. As you know, genuine Russians, hmm. but uh, but nonetheless, there's always been a tricky sort of first among equals kind of problem. And then you've got there might be safe a, a favourable relationship to someone from Armenia, but if you're from say Kyrgyzstan, then it might be a different relationship or or societal well, prejudice. Well, you have historic conflicts, for example, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, mm. which are also religious conflicts. And the people that I was studying were large. They were not united in who they saw as the foe, who they saw as the problem. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's, there's a lot to unpack there. But what really impressed me was the dynamics of a society in collapse. Mm. and what kinds of social identities come to the fore, what can people trust, and and how do those identities end up becoming part of the same problem, the same generation of ongoing chaos, criminality, violence. And and what I noticed, what was very, very evident was that neither the Liberals, who were whose main project was was individual freedom and money accumulation, nor the leftists, uh, whose project was essentially that of class solidarity and class struggle, really had a, a, a psychologically or spiritually compelling answer to, to this kind of racist nationalism. And, and I, you know, that ended up, I would say that that was kind of part of the ongoing as I see a crisis of the left that has been kind of contemporaneous with my life in which I've, I've, um, kind of tried to understand. Uh, so, so you talk about the left and I think in our day and age, people have become a little bit confused yeah. about what the left stands for and what the right stands for. Mm. What, what would you, how would you define the classical left or the, you know, how, say, which, how, yeah, how would you explain what the left is in your sense, in a, not an ideal sense, maybe an accurate understanding of what the left is? Yeah. 
I guess you could say that the left is that part of humanity, if you want, of, of conscious, politically oriented humanity that is interested in the self-emancipation of people. And, you know, historically it emerges in the context of the declining legitimacy of religion and the, the promulgation of, of ideals such as liberty, equality and fraternity, which come out of, you know, at least according to my understanding, come out of the overthrow of feudalism and the emergence of a bourgeoisie which is claiming its own place in the sun and generates these, or it sort of latches onto these ideals as a way of, of pushing the aristocracy and, and the old feudal order off its, off its throne. And socialists and other leftists are ones who, at least I'm, gonna, I'm talking here sort of prior the emergence of what we now call identity politics, they're ones who are one way or another just trying to find a way to realise those ideals. Like how can we literally be free and equal and fraternal? You know, that's that's really the the project. If you think about it in a kind of idealized way, you know, that, that in the in the what what are the ideas that captivate people's imaginations? And tr- traditionally, the right has no necessary interest or inclination in emancipation. And I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say mm. that. It's more that whether you're talking about say, the neoliberal right, which we associate very strongly with with capitalism and the capitalist ethic, or the reactionary right, which we associate more with national or racial, sometimes religious self-identification, what they don't will is the freedom of all. They don't will equality for all. They don't will fraternity for all. It, one way or another, it's, sorry, mate, you ended up at the bottom of the pile, next lifetime maybe, you know? Uh, and to me, that you know, there can be a realism about that, there can be a pragmatism about that, and there can be a a kind of flattening that comes with just a, a, a straightforward universalism, as if none of those identities mattered. So I'm not I'm not uh, here arguing that that the right doesn't represent some form of of willing of will to freedom. It does, but it's will to freedom at other people's expense. And so essentially uh, the way I understand a leftist is one who, or, or put another way, why the word left matters to me. Uh, I don't think it's just a historical artifact of when I happen to be born. It's that we, we owe fundamentally our fates are tied together. And if we consent to live in societies where... Some people are just stuck in in poverty and exploitation and misery. Then, in the end, we're not free either. You know, uh, we are in it together at some deep level. So, where would you, how would you describe your political orientation these days? How would you explain that to people? Yeah. So. The way we've gone into this conversation, it probably, um, it may leave people somewhat bamboozled. That's okay. Let's bamboozle. Oh, we'll bamboozle. Them. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's very hard to find the thread that most ra- sort of most rationally opens up uh, a kind of a, a topic or an area. 
um, or makes it seem compelling. I guess my my rough word for or rough sort of phrase for how I think is some kind of entheogenically informed uh, ecological socialism. Um, so I see the ecological can issue as really imperative for human beings, and regardless of disputes about the particular rate of climate change, it's quite evident that we are smashing a lot of other species and a lot of bio biosphere is is coming under massive pressure. We are in in some kind of extinction event when it comes to other species and regardless of whether that means that we're headed off a cliff, which it could well mean for, uh, for this species, it also is just a sort of a massive impoverishment of potential life experience and, and a massive loss of collective response or failure of collective responsibility. So I, think, I see the ecological as, a, as something that should be front and centre in, in terms of how human beings are thinking about the situation right now. And once, you know, that's not the only issue. No. Um, there, are a range, there are a range of issues that are kind of clustering around us. And these are not just problems that we're beset by, you know, whether it's, it's a massive inequality or it's the colonisation of the human mind via the, the techno-capitalist immaterium, you know, which goes sort of way beyond the internet now. Um, or splitting up into fundamentalisms and, and various um, more or less pathological responses to our situation, etc. It's, it's not that we're just confronted by these problems, it's that we have a kind of a social order which is constitutively irresponsible. Like it can't, we, we have elites that you know, are in more and more wealthy and less and less capable of shouldering the burdens of our situation. You know, I'd be I'd be actually happy if we could just get an enlightened elite. You know, so it's not a question of uh, always going for the maximum. You know, we, we we have to we have to have revolution, and nothing else will will do. I, I think our situation might well be very dire, and whatever shifts we can get t- towards a fairer, more ecologically. Um, sustainable situation or regenerative social order, the better. Yeah. I sort of think about when you were talking earlier <clears throat> about the left as a an outlook or philosophy that doesn't punish, uh, say, you know, those who, 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 who don't uh, necessarily succeed in society. I'm really thinking about Bernie Sanders mm. and America in general, how mm. a lot of people there need to hold down two or three jobs to, mm. to survive mm. and just how I think living in Australia, like we would generally see that as almost intolerable, almost intolerable conditions because I think there seems to be a kind of empathy or 
you know, have, you know, we have this attitude of giving people a fair go, mm. that there's a, there's a sort of a human quality where I don't think we would accept that in our society. Yeah. Whereas it's become normalized in America where you've got this, you, you, you're really punishing people. And I remember when I first heard the term, um, white trash, I think I was in a motel. In somewhere in Alabama, in some crazy little town in Alabama, yeah. I heard the term white trash. And I was absolutely appalled. Was it I a self designation from somebody or was it people talking about I think it was on Entertainment Tonight or okay. whatever yeah. bullshit was on the TV. Yeah. And they say so and so is, is playing a white trash actor. And I thought, what? That's just a terrible thing yes. to call someone. It's terrible, but it's not just terrible that people are called that, it's that people are pushed into that kind of situation and they have generations of people who who do grow up in trailer parks and or that very marginal existence which is I think quite crazy making you know it's and it is a result of some kind of ideological bamboozlement you know where often those people will by hook or by crook they're going to support the system which is grinding them down because heaven forbid Heaven forbid their taxes go to somebody else's healthcare, you know, who's just going to be a freeloader or, or a parasite of some kind. You know, when when people were digging into where the Trump voters were coming from, some of them were coming from from that kind of perspective. And I guess in terms of the comparison with Australia, it's my part of my emphasis on politics would be to say whenever you you kind of find yourself with these social or cultural Distinctions, you know, like Australians wouldn't put up with that or they don't think that way. There's always a political history to that. And of course, the politics, in some sense, an expression of the culture. These, there's a chicken and egg situation here. But we're, you know, very crucially here, the labor movement didn't get smashed in the same way that it did in the US, mm-hmm. but smashed in the US with extreme violence. Mm. And the, and that has to do. You can you can push it further and further back in terms of the different kind of populations that ended up in in the US and in Australia, but we had a, a trade union movement that was a counterpower to capital, mm-hmm. and that what in general you see is that outside of the Soviet sphere, the trade union movement had a very civilizing influence on capital. Hmm. It was able to sort of say, no, you're not going to work us to the bone. We're going to have an eight-hour day. Hmm. We, like, and, and there was a there was a collective capacity to to force that kind of class compromise. Hmm. Hmm. And really, that's that's what we're missing in a major way now. Like for various reasons. Well, that's not the only thing, but that's a key thing that we're missing now. Hmm. And the story about why that's the case is something that's kind of preoccupied me for, for a long time. Um, and, but, and that's kind of where in some ways that's how I got into psychedelics. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what years you were living in Russia. Yeah. And what, what, uh, what years, how long were you living in Russia and between what years? Yeah. So I ended up there in, uh, 91 to 94. So mm-hmm. I saw the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And yep. the beginnings of shock therapy or the, the, the results of shock therapy. Yeah. You know, or people used to say therapy, so shock without therapy. You know? Yeah. So. And then later on in 98, 
Right, right. So what, from what you could gather, were the really positive elements? Because that's something that's not really stressed or talked about, the positive elements within that society around almost sort of just coming out of communism. What, what, what did you gather that were the really perhaps positive aspects of communism that's not really talked about? Yeah, look, uh, I can try and answer that, but that's not where the emphasis of my thinking goes. I mean, my, I'm pretty much a, a strong critic of, of what ended up being the communist regimes. You know, I do think that Stalinism was a counter-revolution. Yeah. And, you know, you... you you can sort of see evidence in that that the the main revolutionaries were were killed off, yeah, and vast numbers of people were sent into camps, mm. and you had extreme violence from this bureaucracy that took over in the name of the people. Yeah, it's true that it took over in the name of the people, and and there was a certain fidelity to those ideals, and so you did have universal education and universal housing and. You had a, a health system which did eradicate tuberculosis, and that you know that did put people into space uh, where probably the czarist regime never would have done that. I mean, it's also true that in some ways they got cosmonauts instead of communism. You know, once once it was quite clear that they weren't they weren't going anywhere beyond an authoritarian or quasi totalitarian state. Uh, where you couldn't speak your mind, then people were kind of distracted with the greatness of the Soviet Union that could put somebody into space. Um, but, you know, that's a genuine achievement. And, of course, the huge one is that they, that they defeated the Nazis. You know, they were the key ones that defeated the Nazis. And I think, you know, if, if Nazism had met up with... Japanese totalitarianism on the other side and the whole continent had come under the, the rule of these charismatic um, Führers, then humanity really would have been under the thumb in a, in a, a wholly different and more terrible way. So I think we do owe a lot to, to the people that were, you know, capable of throwing themselves in front of those tanks. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I, on the other hand, you know, the Russians and and other peoples in in the Federation and and in the Soviet Union just paid just a colossal price, which is you know a price to build those regimes. And in the end, they kind of evaporated because they there was just too vast a, a distance between what they claimed to be and what they really were. So you were talking about your ideal and you mentioned the word socialism what's your take on tito's socialism in yugoslavia because in my view and talking to people and having been to all those little countries that used to be one big country yeah and you talk to the old people and they say actually life wasn't too bad mm. everyone had a job we all had lots of free time because we didn't work much and and life was okay, you yeah. Know. Uh, clearly, I mean, I never went to to the former Yugoslavia, but it was obviously, as those regimes go, it was preferable. And the fact that Tito broke from Stalin and joined the non-aligned movement, 
and tried to sort of set up a space, you know, along with Tanzania and uh, Indonesia and these middle middle third world powers, uh, tried to create a kind of a, a third option between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, was historically very important and. It was less authoritarian. It it had modes of participation in it that I guess empowered people to some degree, and crucially, it kind of kept the lid on capital accumulation, or I should say, kept the lid on on the privatization of property. But then, in the end, as from my understanding, it was really vulnerable once you you got a breakdown of economic prosperity. Um, it was vulnerable to taking huge loans from the West, and underneath that, there was this sort of there was the potential for nationalistic self-assertion, you know. And the former Yugoslavia sort of broke up into these warring uh, national units. But if Tito had continued to live on, it seemed to me he was really the guy keeping it together from the the outside forces that would kind of fracture and. Um, you know, ignite those those nationalistic yeah. forces. Yeah, but if if a society collapses in the way it did, mm. then you'd have to say that that there are some really severe problems. That it's mm. you know, there's problems of social reproduction which it's not meeting. Yeah, and you know, in the end, there were severe limits on what you could say and think, mm. and and people ended up in in jails for or you know banished to to the sticks or put in prison mm, for mm. not towing the party line yeah yeah and yeah i think maybe the optimistic side of me was is that is that when you repress people like that eventually you're going to produce the kinds of irrationalities that bring the system down mm, mm. so the direction we want to go in is towards more more equality of capacity to participate in society mm, in real mm. terms. And the, and the cultivation of a desire. You know, a lot of people, when they're confronted with economic crisis or civil war, well, of course, they're going to be really nostalgic about how things were. Mm, mm. But they might be, they might have just put up with a situation where they couldn't speak their mind because it, they traded that for a certain amount of security. And you see that now where people are kind of being asked to, to trade the capacity to speak their mind for for a certain amount of security. And, okay, I can understand that, but I don't really support it. So you were saying before I was asking you what is your political outlook and you mentioned an environmental kind of socialism. And I was saying before about Bernie Sanders who provided a very mild form of mm. not even socialism, it's just what what happens in many European countries yeah. is the standard like um, human way of operating a society. Yeah. And the people not interested. They don't want that. So in this kind of democracy, what do you see any kind of um 
you know, hope within Western societies of um, a a kind of shift that is going to um, help us to move forward and deal with this environmental, yeah. uh, ecological, human that, crisis. I wouldn't agree that people weren't interested. I think the reason we, we talk about Bernie Sanders is because a lot of people were really galvanised mm-hmm. and really enthused. And I thought it was a real sort of vote for the US in a sense that it can still come up with figures like this who have a generosity of vision and, you know, a capacity to speak to the common person, if you want, in a way which was trying to cut through the the ideological smoke screens, which just would, would try and tell you that just because Jeff Bezos you know, made $3 billion before he went to the toilet this morning, you shouldn't be concerned about that, even though you have to sleep in your car while you're working working for Amazon or something, you know, or, or Walmart or whoever, whatever may be the case. And, he, you know, he's sort of the kind of monomania. Bernie's just been smashing that kind of, that issue of wealth inequality and the corruption of the whole political system for a long time. But I would have to say, on the one side, he... In the end, those forces that he was talking about were as strong as he was saying that they are. You know, they they were able to defeat his campaign primarily through their control of the Democratic Party machine. Mm. And, you know, they openly manipulated the the whole process in order to get their candidate candidate Hillary mm. Clinton up. Mm. And and but they also did it very crucially through the kind of mobilization of the, if you want, the woke left uh, or woke progressives, the, the liberal progressives, as I call them. You know, it was very crucial that uh, Sanders was not able to win over the black caucus within the Democratic Party. And he was partly undermined by people like uh, Black Lives Matter storming up and saying that he wasn't sufficiently concerned with race mm. and... Uh, and and to understand that, you have to understand how race has much more moral power as a as a mobilizing concern in the US yeah, yeah. than class does mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. days. You know, yeah. and, and so Bernie's sort of from this old left that's sort of trying to keep mm. keep the class concern alive and to sort of say, look, this is objectively the the, the world that we're living in. You know, it's, and I, I would challenge anybody who would claim that that race is more fundamental to American society than class mm, is mm. to to consider. You know, let's say you you line up at the airport these days. It's a it's a matter of no concern mm. that the people with lots of money sit in better seats and get on first and get off first. Uh, imagine if we did that by color. Mm. There would be riots you know the the airplanes would be burnt mm. and what goes for airplanes goes for everything it goes for all the houses we buy the cars we buy everything is mediated by wealth mm. and mm. Uh, it's not to say that racism is not a, a significant dimension mm. of how power operates uh in the in the u.s and in the west and in other places but it's not it doesn't have the same kind of centrality uh, to the functioning of the system, I, w- I would argue, mm. and and so he's he's sort of trying to scream in the face 
of people look look at this fundamental aspect of society that we're not addressing. And I, to some degree, I see the kind of politics, uh, you know, the, the contemporary progressive politics as sort of acting out, an impotent acting out around issues where we can go forward because we can't go forward in terms of challenging the power of the billionaires. Mm. And, and mm. The, as I see it, you know, we, the billionaires are standing in between us and what we need to do. Mm because they are not capable of being responsible at this point. Mm. Uh, they, they're primarily capable of accumulating more funds for themselves mm. and protecting themselves from whatever social and ecological chaos eventuates. And so, but for the most part, if you think about the discourse at the moment, we're just not addressing it. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. No, that's a really good point. And neither, and neither do the psychedelic people really. Mm. Mostly. Okay, so let's address. <laughs> let's let's have this discourse. I know, I know. <laughs> let's have this discourse. So, what do we need to do then? What if we if we're not going to feel disempowered politically or socially? What 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 would you say is a constructive way forward? Um. So can I go back a little bit and answer that in a, mm. long, a longish sort of a way? So. In my life, I've seen the long kind of decay of this earlier left that we spoke about, this class-based left. Mm. And, you know, you can go back, for example, to the 30s and the emergence of the popularity of fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany and authoritarianism and even the defeat of, of the, the revolution in Germany after you had the revolution in, in Russia in 1917. And what, what do all of those events have sort of brought to the fore, I think, for, for thoughtful observers, was there's aspects of human beings and of the human psyche that we don't understand too well and it doesn't go according to the proletarian script. You know, it doesn't, it's not just that, People become class conscious. They realize they're being exploited. They realize that their old gods were kind of alienated forms of their alienated condition. And now they're going to sort of um, consolidate, develop solidarity and, and conquer, conquer the state on behalf of everybody. Uh, it gets more complicated. You get, you get these authoritarian leaders and, and they're supported by large numbers of people when, when the situation is extreme. And in other words, the reactionary right can, can present itself as a, a solution to, to massive social problems. So psychoanalysis comes in as, a, as another kind of interpret, interpretive grid for understanding this, you know, that there's an unconscious dimension to human beings. And to cut a long story short, I think psychoanalysis ends up well, let's put it this way. In the light of psychedelic experience, psychoanalysis doesn't go that deeply into mm. human into the human interiority. Yep. And it it ends up being too it's still too much a creature of the society that it's trying to understand and to critique. So part of the potential of psychedelics here is to be able to it's like a sort of metaphysical school where you can get some metaphysical literacy and real come come to understand 
the grounds of your own being in, to, to some degree independent of all of these sociocultural forms mm. which mm. Uh, which appear in, for example, political and ideological form with Marxism or intellectual form, institutional form with psychoanalysis. There's something incredibly radical about psychedelics. Not to say that they're not cultural and culturally mediated, etc. themselves, mm. but they have this sort of way of of pushing in deep below, We're more or less indefinitely. You can just keep going deeper and deeper with them. And so, so there's a few things that go on there, but there's a, there's a sort of capacity for liberating yourself, at least in those moments, from the ways in which everything you were thinking was kind of overdetermined by the sociocultural inheritance, um, including the political inheritance. And so that seems to me at least one thing you can do in order to sort of try and get a little bit of a distance from from this sort of historical knot that we're stuck in where, you know, we're, we, we, um, we, we ought to be able to save ourselves, you know, we ought to be able to feed ourselves, surely, and yet apparently we can't. Um, and at another level, I think, you know, there's a, there's a way, let's just use these these polarities which I was talking about before, there's a way in which, say, Marxist-oriented socialism on the one side and psychoanalysis on the other respond to, on, in the first place, the sort of external, social, institutional aspect of human beings and on the other, the, the internal, um, unconscious dimension of human beings. But they don't, go, they don't come together. You, you, ha- you had efforts from the notorious Frankfurt School that's now blamed for, for cultural Marxism, which is apparently behind all of our problems, uh, you had efforts to bring Freudianism or psychoanalysis and Marxism together and to try to understand something like the emergence of fascism or the emergence of, of the tragedy of Stalinism in the, in the place where, you, where, where human beings were trying for their own liberation. And the thing is, you can get a lot of insights there, but you can't, you can't these are incompatible frameworks. And one of the promises, I think, of, of psychedelics is that you could rethink it um, from a different intuition about what human beings are. And so, yeah, my intuition about human beings is that some of our traditional God images are much closer to what we really are than than either Marxism or psychoanalysis would assume because they see see those as as, um, distorted... Uh, uh, and for that matter, oppressive, delusory forms of consciousness, rather than which they also can be and have been, but they're also intuitions which go, I think, closer to to what I have apprehended about who we are, and, and therefore what our potential is, and 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 also what are the grounds for our cooperation. Mm, mm. So having that insight into the, the let's say the 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 deeper human potential um where has that brought you in your philosophy understanding and sense of thinking that you feel might be useful in the world right now yeah um 
Well, I mean, what I can explore a little bit further that God dimension, you know, mm. I think, for example, let's say we've got this human situation we're trying to deal with, right? And one of the ways which that shows up is, I mean, here in this little kindergarten of the, the West that I inhabit, uh, is the, say, the split between people who believe in God and, and people who think that's ridiculous, you know. So you have the, let's say, in the last 15 years, you've had the split between more or less complacent Christianity and which is kind of trying to keep, keep its head down because it's not too confident in itself anymore, and uh, militant new atheism, which is already now kind of fading. But I don't know that we've really transcended that opposition, right? And so let me just tackle, say, the... So, so that, would, that presents itself as a sort of way in which we're blocked conceptually, right? How do we think our way through this opposition? Or should we try to, or should we just join one camp or the other, for example, or, or invent something else? So the psychedelics has helped me through this kind of, it's, it's this sort of metaphysical struggle school where very quickly you can, you can work through these options. So let's take the new atheist popular kind of ideas like, well, you know, if you believe in God, why don't you believe in the flying spaghetti monster, you know? Uh, they're just as credible, aren't they? Uh, you know, most of the gods that peoples have ever believed in are now not believed in, and they're, from our perspective, from the perspective of, say, any Christian believer or Muslim or, or Jew or Buddhist, it, each of these god images is, is ridiculous, except you just, let's leave the Buddhists out, but you, you know, you believe in one more. So you're an atheist. The, the militant atheists will say, you're an atheist about all these other gods except for your one god. And an atheist is, a true atheist is just somebody who goes that one step further and disbelieves in all gods because they're all equivalent to the flying spaghetti monster. And I think the, it would be very interesting for those people to try to, when under the influence of ayahuasca or, or LSD, for example, to sort of try and think through the flying spaghetti monster mm, you know, mm. as a genuine image of God. Yeah. And what they might find is that this conception of God as the unconditioned ground or the eternal ground of existence, um, which is a kind of a one formula from a more esoteric or mystical perspective uh, about the nature of God, is one that is quite different from any particular image of yeah. God. Yeah. And it emerges, you know, through deep questioning about what is the truth of our condition. Mm. And as soon as you latch on to any, any particular understanding about the nature of reality and, and where, it's sort of, where its engine room is, if you want, as soon as you do that, in a, in a, in a psychedelic experience, you will very quickly come to understand that it's not simply an objectivity that's independent of how you're apprehending it. It, it can only be apprehended through a certain kind of consciousness. And this is something that the, that the new atheists will tend to overlook. They think well, reality is, is, is a kind of objective realm. It's independent of how we see it. It will be there whether you're looking at it or not. 
it'll have its own, it'll do its own thing with you, however you're apprehending it. And what they will ignore is that that's not how human beings used to think about it. Mm. And they probably won't think about it in the same way, even if we keep going with our science in 500 years. It's, it, or at least the way that reality is showing up as an objectivity for you now is part of this morphing conceptual, cultural, historical field. Mm. So there, there are, and so to, to try to get to the point here, there are subjective conditions of possibility for the emergence of the kind of objectivity which you as an atheist posit as independent of us. Mm. Right? Mm. When you go, like one of, the, one of the things that I think happens very typically on psychedelics is you can cycle through a lot of these positions very quickly and what one major pattern keeps emerging as I see it is is a kind of process of trying to bring into view the standpoint from which whatever is being appearing to you is appearing. Right? So you so in other words there's there's a kind of structural thing where the point of view is always outside the field of what it's viewing. You you can't see the eye that sees if you want. Mm-hmm. But then you, it turns out that you can. You bring it in, mm-hmm. or, or it brings itself in yeah. like this, and it sort of swallows itself. And and lo and behold, now you apprehend differently. Mm-hmm. But then you find out, okay, that there's still another standpoint which is not being brought into view here. So there's a kind of internalizing of the subjective position into that which mm-hmm. which appears. And it's interesting. I think just to sort of drift off the point a little bit. No, I think some of the interpreters of psychedelics at the moment really emphasize the category of the weird, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of sort of saying it's unmasterable. It's, it's, it's this aspect that it's this sort of realm where what, to, what I think they're saying is that there's not a clear organizing principle here. Mm. You can't bring the organizing principle of that which is appearing into view. Mm-hmm. My experience is that you can over yep. and over again, mm. over and over again. And so it's a kind of internalizing, it's an infinite internalizing of the infinite, mm. if you want. Mm. And that, that principle of what is appearing, I don't know, tell me whether you, you experience it like this. It always seems to be connected with some kind of umbilical cord to the position from which you are experiencing. In other words, mm. that realm of objectivity that you're apprehending is all of manifest manifestation is mm. always in some intrinsic way connected to the subject. Mm. Mm. So what's the, what's the, how do I cash that out? Basically there's, there's a kind of knowing there which is best described as divine. And it seems to me it's a kind of self knowing of human being mm. uh, that, that is best described as you know, that we describe ourselves as in some intrinsic way as divine. Is it really divine knowing? Because I think within the Western intellectual tradition, you've always got the attempt to understand the world through the intellect. Mm. And then um, <clears throat> I think with psychedelics, you can, you can, um, have a knowing, but I'm not sure it's divine. I think perhaps it's more an innate ability to know. 
or or feel that you that you have a knowing that you can kind of test within your own little reality and you can sort of see if that sticks if that holds so uh, what what i found is if i have that that sense of being able to kind of you know transcend the anchor i think you can transcend the anchor a little bit and you can kind of move out of your of your known sphere and you can sort of apprehend mm. beyond yourself and then when you when you and i think you can have an understanding hey that's possible to do and perhaps get more capable of um tuning into that sense of apprehension and doing it again in your regular consciousness so right. you're able to in in a sense in a way i, I see it as more as having a, a sort of psychic ability Mm -hmm. you know of being able to like take the pulse of collective consciousness in a way or take the pulse of collective unconsciousness interesting i think a lot of us got that within the last year uh-huh we've got massive jolts of what the collective consciousness is doing yeah, or the collective unconsciousness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i suppose it depends what your your focus is mm. to me that would be a more particular uh goal Right. Whereas I guess when I think about how did how did the sort of self-emancipatory human subject get defeated to the degree that it has gotten defeated now, you know, there was a very explicit aim to to emancipate ourselves, and it had a quite concrete goals, you know, which was the conquest of the state on behalf of the people, and you know, things like that. Now we've kind of settled for now we've now now. You know, it's very hard to imagine ourselves. It's very hard to even generate a collective will mm. to to sort of say, "Well, look, we've got we've got a global ruling class that is just fumbling the ball, mm. that is pushing us in a very suicidal direction." Uh, let's let's recognize that and do something about it. We we don't at this point have that kind of collective maturity to to generate that collective will, like a collective capacity for action. And I think. One of the reasons that's happened is that the that just to revert again to that sort of Freudian Marxist way of understanding ourselves is it didn't get deep enough into what we are, mm. and fundamentally that meant that we became prey to radical disorientation. That our our sanity as individuals and as and as any communities was was not sufficiently open to the mystery of our own being, mm. that we became highly reliant on affirmations from others who were themselves mm -hmm. disoriented and lost. Mm. And we cling to that sort of semblance of sanity as much as possible, even if it means we kind of look to the side and we know we're in the same raft heading towards the same falls, you know? Is this the, the, the sheep looking at the movements of the other sheep and uh, in front of it and to the left of it? Yeah, but also with a kind of guilty conscience. Like, mm. I think that there's a kind of sense that there, there's a sort of fate here. We seem fated to drift towards... Let's say, for example, you know, a, a kind of highly technologically mediated surveillance state, um, 
or we seem fated to drift towards ecological cataclysms. Um, and and, I, and I, I don't think I'm the only one who kind of... I mean, I know I'm not the only one who sees the sort of shadow of these mm. things. Mm. And but, but what I also see as a kind of spectral shadow is, is this promise of psychedelics that has always been there, at least since in the kind of the modern period of, you know, 50s on with, with, this, with the rediscovery of, of these psychoactive compounds. There's a sense that, that there's, a, there's a liberatory potential. You know, when one of my paradigm images for this is, um, is I think when Allen Ginsberg was given mushrooms by Timothy Leary, maybe 61 or 63 or something like that. Apparently he stripped naked and he wanted to run down the street declaring the good news and he wanted to get on the phone to Khrushchev and, and Kennedy and turn them on to this. And it's obviously naive, but, it, but there's something true in that naivety as well that I don't think we should drop. But I don't know whether we have gotten a lot further in the last 60 years or 70 years with our understanding of that promise. Like, it feels to me like, like you, in any group of people, you will, you will find there's this sort of utopianism that emerges at the peak of an experience. And then we, it's very difficult to develop the collective intelligence to realise that promise. And, um, you know, the, one of the reasons I'm kind of in this old-fashioned socialist kind of way trying to resituate the conversation a little bit in terms of that history is, is to say, unless we bring that, that history of, of human attempts at self-emancipation into view and understand the psychedelic experience partly as within that history and enabled by that history, also limited by it, then we just we, we never we never advance our un, our understanding of that of that potential. So it's almost like there's this there's this other guilty conscience. It's not just that we look off the raft or look at the other sheep and go, yeah, we all know that we're being sheep in a kind of a way. It's also that we've tell me whether you disagree with this, but we, we kind of feel the promise of these revelatory experiences. Mm -hmm. And yet we become very inarticulate when it comes to well, how would that translate into developing a collective human subject or subjectivities that could face up to our situation. Yeah, yeah. So, so you didn't quite answer my question. No. <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> what, which is along the lines of what, what do you really see as the, as the, as the way forward? What do you see as the, the actions we need to take collectively and individually? Look, I think um, part of it is just trusting to some degree as these substances get out there and you get more and more people with more varied self-understandings and agendas sort of coming to the table and going through that metaphysical struggle school of, of the, the peak experience or whatever. Um, and so it's a kind of potential upgrade to how people begin to think. And so then 
um, you can attempt to sort of map our situation in terms of a series of of contradictory uh, oppositional possibilities in various zones. I mean, maybe I can risk talking about, say, Israel-Palestine, um, since that's been in the news recently. I've been thinking about it a bit. Um, obviously, this has to be surrounded with caveats uh, of not being an expert in the in the area by any means. But but it's also part of our political world here in Australia, for mm. example. Um, and there's a kind of moral obligation, I feel, to inform yourself to some degree and and to try to come to grips with it. Mm. And, you know, it's one of the things that really comes to the fore. So, so why do I bring that up? Here you seem to have right in front of us an incredible blockage, mm. you know, this really stubborn situation mm. that apparently people cannot resolve. Mm. And it's not just an indifferent one. People are, there's some really terrible suffering there. Yeah. And, it, and one of the things that really comes to the fore in, in how people, I think I'm thinking here particularly of pro-Palestinian kinds of, uh, positions which I'm very sympathetic to. But one of these things that's very clear about it is that there's a repression of the religious in the discourse. Mm. So we we are to emphasize the injustice of people's land being illegally stolen. Um, we're to emphasize that a correct description of Israel is that it is a two-tier uh, state, an apartheid state, in other, in other, in one term or another, um, and you know the Palestinians simply just should be allowed back. There should be a large return, and so on and so forth. And the it, it's as if it's as if what's not recognised here is the real impotence of this this Western gaze, which is unable to come to grips with the religious dimension of the conflict, which is so alive on both sides. And were it not for that religious dimension, we would not have the conflict as it is. It wouldn't just be some land. It's not just some land dispute. You know, it's, it's dispute over this holy territory as far as these people are concerned, right? which has been part of the format. It's been part of human of what has become human history over the last, whatever, 3,000-something years. And so how, how would psychedelics help here, right? Well, I can tell you one way I think they might not help that much, which would be you, I, there's, been some, there's been some studies or beginnings of studies about Palestinians and Israelis taking ayahuasca together and also some work on people taking MDMA uh, in that in that zone, and so far, as far as I can tell, the emphasis is very much just on recognizing a kind of uh, human unity, or uh, you know, the reality of being humans underneath the skin of being either an Israeli or a Palestinian. Um, and so on and so forth. What I haven't seen 
is those substances helping people on either side to bring their own conception of the religious into question and to go, to really bring out what seems to me inarguable, I'm sure people would try and argue me out of it, but inarguable, is that you will not ever resolve that conflict. Why are you, why are you calling it a conflict? Okay, we're not supposed to call it a conflict anymore. Let's call it a tragedy. Let's call it a tragedy. That's, that's better. Right? I call it a tragedy, actually, because I think that's informative, because you know, a tragedy is one where you have different conflicting norms and there's no resolution in, within the terms of the tragedy for those norms. And a tragedy implicitly asks for the development of some higher norm that, which, that people could uh, recognise themselves in, which would allow the resolution of, of the, the antagonism. And, you know, quite clearly we have traumatised people on both sides who are locked into their... or one way in which they symbolise their trauma is to adhere all the more... Uh, zealously to their understanding of their group essence, which is, you know, formed around these contradictory God images, you know, these contradictory land claims that come out of those religious, um, those religious conceptions of the essence of being Jewish or the essence of being uh, Muslim, Palestinian, for example. And so... Is it, you know, either, either one side is going to defeat the other and obliterate the other, or you're going to have a continuation of, of Palestinians in this degraded, you know, highly humiliated, uh, miserable mm. condition mm. inside a state that doesn't fully allow them to, mm. to exist as citizens, or, or this would be the utopian potential, which would be, no, you're going to get more and more ex-Muslims and, and ex-Jews who are going to say, but that doesn't mean they're going to become just secular, that they could say, no, we, we have a social responsibility to bring into question those aspects of our religious tradition mm. that make the situation irresolvable. It doesn't seem to be the way it is or the way it's going with religion um, mm. And there seems to be this very strong, um, hardline conformism and identity that is uh, very, very passionate and feels very necessary yeah. for personal identity. So I, I can't see a way forward. And I think it's uh, it's interesting what we were talking more in terms of humanity, the political situ situation, mm. the ecological crisis, this kind of highly intractable situation, yeah. I think might represent um, in some ways a kind of metaphor of our human failure in a way. Yeah, but I, I think there are ways through whether they get taken or not or how, how much we have to bash each other's heads together in order to get convinced that that we have to find another way. Like, in other words, mm. how deeply we have to move into the tragic situation is one thing. But, mm. but insofar as that tragic situation keeps creating trauma, mm. you know, I, I'm a little bit suspicious of this way in which we understand trauma is everywhere now, but just let's take that. You can, 
you can, with the help of psychedelics and entheogens, you can loosen up your relationship to trauma. You can bring into view the way in which religious authorities are tacitly attempting to monopolize the interpretation of your trauma, to ground their authority in your trauma and in your intergenerational trauma. Without, without the power of all those terrible deaths that have come you know, to your people through history, those religious institutions and powers they lose a lot of they lose a lot of their capacity to keep on reproducing themselves and you know surely it's it's only where you get a certain freedom of consciousness emerging that you can get a a, kind of a will to generate a kind of vision of the sacred that includes the other you know that that is prepared to say your fate is important to us you know, your your liberation is important to us. In the end, in the end, as an Israeli, let's just say, as an Israeli, I'm not going to be free while the Palestinians are are under the boot. I think it's interesting because very obviously the 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 Israelis are informed by this inter generational trauma of mm. being persecuted through many centuries which has solidified mm. their cultural and religious site hardened their cultural and religious identity it almost seems to the point where they lack empathy for people outside of that tribal model well i think that that can happen but i also think you know that there are there are other responses you know there there's a response that that um, Gabor Mate emphasizes in the, the psychotherapist or psychologist from, from Canada who's originally from Hungary and his Jewish background, or Jewish, um, you know, it, that never again means, means and should mean and must mean never again for everybody. Mm. And I think that that's a clear, it's a clear division in a way. Like, if you only emphasize never again for us, then it's to hell with everybody else. Uh, if you emphasize never again for everybody, you have a different set of responsibilities. It doesn't mean that you can neglect never again for us. So it doesn't mean, I'm not saying that things become uncomplicated. Uh, yeah, it seems to me, because I you know, have arguments with Israeli Jewish friends about this, and there, there seems to be this hardened tribalism, and it's like, wait on here. Like, you're an aware empathetic person mm. who takes psychedelics, right? And to still choose the yes. choose the, the 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 Israeli tribe and you know how great and powerful it is and how horrible it is that these um that that Hamas is um you know throwing the rockets over the fence. Yeah. So what I see is that in the contemporary discourse, people normally avoid the strong points on, in the opposition's uh, arguments. You know, in this case, it is a very strong point that Hamas would like to obliterate Israel. You know, that's a very strong point. If you're living in Israel, you've been born in Israel, let's say, 
you know, and it's the historic land of your people as you, as you conceive it, then it's not an irrelevant point that one of your main, you know, let's put it mildly, interlocutors uh, is intent on getting rid of you, you know, root and branch. And, you know, when it comes to, say, the apartheid metaphor, I think if you want to look at the South African example, one of the reasons why apartheid ended up being dismantled was that the ANC under the leadership of Mandela, who came out of Methodism, he he developed a kind of radical version of that, which was guaranteeing to the white regime that if the ANC came to power, whites would not be slaughtered in their beds. And there's no way that 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 white minority would have given up power eventually as they did unless they were faced with an opponent who convincingly mm. said, no, there's a place for you here. Yeah. Right? And, you know, so that's why I would see as much as I think the Israelis obviously bear the prime responsibility for the situation, um, there's, a, there's a responsibility on the other side, which perhaps is, in, is very difficult to open up there's a responsibility on the other side to come up with a kind of option where where your opponent can believe mm. that you genuinely see see their existence as as legitimate yeah yeah well i, I have traveled in the west bank i've yeah. i've explored a lot of israel and i have a fairly good um insight into the situation, and I think some people now are arguing for a one-state solution, and and it makes me think in a one-state solution where you would have, um, and I think why the Israelis don't want the one-state solution is because then you've got more Palestinians, say, in the country who could then vote oh. vote out, right? Of course, yeah. And... Um, but 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 here's the thing. I think that 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 in that case would the would the Palestinians still be would they still have the money and power in this one state? No. The, well, I think to a large extent they would form uh, a working class, hmm. um, and it would be there would be a very strong ethnic division between middle class and, and working class mm. uh, to a large degree. And so that would create its own its own dynamic and its own its own problems. But I think you can't you can't just envisage just sort of this one of the problems I see with the way people talk about it now, it's like, okay, we're just gonna have a one state solution. Somehow these peoples are just gonna just gonna live together. Yeah. And they already do. That's the interesting thing. Part, part, parts of no, well, parts of Israel um, are already. You don't see any, you know, Caucasian Israelis. They're just um, Arab yeah. areas where. Well, I think people who haven't been to Israel don't understand this. It's not. It's not official apartheid, but you don't. You you don't see regular. Caucasian Israelis in these in these places, and this is not this is not uh, occupied territory. You talking about Sephardic Jews here, or are you talking about Israeli Palestinians? Or 
You're talking about Israeli-Palestinians. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, one of the aspects of the current conflict, you know, around East Jerusalem has been precisely that many Israeli-Palestinians have been uh, on the streets as well. Well, that's right, because that's that's what I didn't get till I went there, that you've got whole areas that are a part of official Israel mm. that are just purely, quote-unquote, Arab areas, which I think people haven't been there. They don't understand that. And of course, you know, and it's not like they're completely under the thumb, but it's not like they're, you know, super empowered citizens and they've still got to follow the religious precepts of the culture, for example. And, you know, pro-Israelis will point out that you have Arab uh, representatives in parliament and I think they're part of this minority new government, etc., it's nonetheless the case that in some respects there are prejudicial laws against um, Arab Israelis. Like mm. you can't, as an Arab Israeli, you can't have your family come from anywhere else and join you. On the contrary, whereas as, as a, a Jewish Israeli, you can. And you know, all of these are vexed problems, I think. But their solution would have to lie in the emergence, sort of demographically, of. of a population or a segment of the population that has a lighter relationship to its own religious signification, Mm -hmm. its own traditional religious significations, and understands that it's here to do something which is is an upgrade. Yeah. Not necessarily that it's abandoning its heritage, which is an upgrade. Yeah. I think a a lot of what we're talking about is that we've got an issue where you have a, a relatively small population of people who are relatively enlightened and then you've got the masses who follow religion and uh you know believe what they see on the news it's all all the propaganda at hand and you know i think that related to psychedelics you've only got a at this point a very very small percentage of 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 people taking psychedelics and all the people that i know in israel who don't have a religious orientation, I don't think they see any faith or hope in things changing yeah. with 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 the people around them. They are outsiders to to how society is working. There's no there's no um, there's no necessary off ramp to this religious sure. fundamentalism. Yeah, and and when people come under a lot of pressure, they they tend to produce, which is what I saw, for example, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. When there's a lot of economic and and psychological pressure, then generally speaking, people revert to more fundamentalist or authoritarian forms of their own, you know, group belonging. Mm. Uh, and when they're religious, they they become mm. hyper in that respect. Mm. But when you know, it, there might be something a little bit ridiculous about. Them. I can just as well imagine other people sort of saying this is an ill-informed discussion by people who have got where there's nothing at stake for us here. Mm. But I reject that. I reject mm. that. I don't think it's just a local dispute. I think, mm. I think our incapacity to talk about it in a deep way, even when we're not there on the ground, is is a kind of it's a sort of occlusion where human beings won't look themselves in the face and see who we are and what we're doing to each other. Mm. And whether or not psychedelics can have any role, I don't know. And, but, but what I'm trying to speak for here is a possibility that, that might take 100 years to unfold 
Right? Do do we have that long? <laughs> do, do we have, well, certainly we don't have that long to avoid catastrophes. There will be mm. catastrophes that come at us. But uh, what kind of capacities have we got to to respond in a fertile way to those catastrophes to come? Mm. And you know, those I'm by far by no means thinking of psychedelics as a panacea. I think there's various stages in, in any human being's relationship to them. One of them might be very early on, you think of them as a panacea. Actually, what can very often happen is that you take them, you go into an exploratory phase, and then maybe you go, to hell with it, I believe in the way of my ancestors. Mm. You know, That's where it's really at. And so you might become a card-carrying um, you know, follower of the mullah in your mosque, or you might become a card-carrying follower of your particular Orthodox Jewish sect. Or... Well, well that, that's not how it normally goes. I, I, I remember meeting this, this, this guy um, in Hungary, and it was at a couch surfing meetup, actually. Mm. <laughs> and he was telling me he was a normal, fundamental, Muslim-believing um, man who lived in Saudi Arabia and he started to watch YouTube videos and deprogram himself mm. from it. And you can't, you can't just talk about that in that society that's that's pretty much uh, completely yeah pretty I think it might be against the law uh, even to, to to entertain that possibility but I met him and he was like wow really interesting that someone can just mutate and become like free themselves out out of that out of those like really limited sort of so fixed beliefs I think he he freed himself into a more autonomous way of thinking and viewing about the world, a much more open-minded and inclusive perspective that was not simply dogmatic religion yeah. following all the rules doing all the all the all the things that you'd normally do without question yeah. so but this is the thing that he is a mutant and very few people are, are, are going to do that and i mean personally Actually, I, i'm not sure that that's correct see i would be mm. a little bit more optimistic here. yeah you know i i envisage a kind of uh, Arcadia of the exes, you know, the, the, the ex-Muslims, the ex-Jews, the ex-Christians, the ex-atheists, the mm. ex-naive, entheogenic, psychonautic people, like the the people who are, they've taken the risk of detaching themselves from any particular inherited definition of who and what they are. And and they haven't gone into a dogmatic silo. They haven't just gone, okay, I've lost my grounds here, so I'm going to opt for this. That rather they feel, they feel that they have to remain open to dialogue and to to reasoning. That they have, they feel a certain vocation to make explicit the reasons for why they do things. Mm. And. That's not all we need, but it, but it would actually be really an advance if we. Well, it's not so an advance. We need to keep on nurturing and cultivating 
that portion of the population mm. which is able to, in a kind of non-irritable way, be challenged on what they believe mm. and empathetically recognise that what seems powerful for you does not seem powerful for the person you're talking to. So on what grounds are you going to come up with the how are you going to display the rationality or the reasonableness or the or the the intimate aspects of your convictions and and you do that because once again you recognize you're in the same pot eventually or even now we're in the same pot so going back so going back to our fundamental um my fundamental question is on a on a on a on an individual and collective level what what do you feel that we that how do we need to act and what how do we, what do we need to do to um, avert ecological and social catastrophe well um, that's a easy question <laughs> Yeah. My answer would partly be try and break down the problem into these sub-problems. You know, like we just we just sort of took on one one question, mm-hmm. there, you know. And and you dig where you stand to some degree. So in other words, you you take on the problems that are that are most pertinent to you in your life and you try not to just blindly reproduce the problem in whatever field that you're in. Um, so, for example, as a teacher, I I try to model a certain amount of intellectual independence and and you know capacity to differentiate yourself from what they think you should think. You know, the the, the they mm. should think you should think and. Um, so, you know, in whatever field that you, you find yourself in, if in Tasmania you have these brave people that are locking themselves to, to forest-destroying equipment right now to try and save a Tarkai, you know, and I think that kind of, uh, that kind of more radical kinds of direct action are also really um, crucial not just because of whether they have an impact or not, they kind of have an impact on how you understand yourself, you know. You kind of find out whether or not you can do it when you do it. Um, and maybe just because I'm, I'm glutton for punishment, if you go back to Israel-Palestine <laughs> uh, context, uh, you know. Joe Rogan never talks about the Israel-Palestine conflict. <laughs> Sorry, why did you say that? Oh, he, he, oh well, we're, we're, we're taking up Joe Rogan's slack. Uh, he, he'll never, he won't go there, he won't go there. ever. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about these, you know, what I, I think are admirable attempts to, to have people drink ayahuasca together across different lines and um, lines of also oppression and injustice. If those people were to have some cooperation afterwards where they would say, okay, you know, we Israelis are going to help defend these houses from being taken by these Orthodox settlers. Or, you know, we Palestinians are going to join you Israelis here in replanting these common gardens in which we're, where we're going to both benefit from the harvest. You know, 
that kind of both symbolic and practical action, which is clearly contesting the dominant tendency of, of the Israeli state, but also contesting the, the, the trajectory of, of Hamas or Islamic Jihad, uh, and then, and then weathering the con, the, the oppression that, that would then bring you in, into, that you would bear from the state or from other forces when you try and have that kind of cross religious, uh, cooperation. You know, that's the kind of thing where, obviously that doesn't solve the world situation. But it's a sort of a generalization of those mm. kinds of actions. Yeah, you've that proactive, yeah. proactive, proactive uh, collective uh, social initiatives. Yeah, and some of you are going to fall in love and you're going to have, uh, you know, cross-religious families. And you, you're going, and, and those children will hopefully gain a certain independence from both of those um, religions, you know, and, and will... Not that they will deny those religions, but that they will apprehend who they are in some other sense. And um, it, so what you can do is, is you can look at whatever is bearing on you the most to the degree that you have surplus energy to do more than just try and stay afloat in your society. Mm. And, and you, can tackle, you can tackle what feels most imperative and you know whether it's plastics in the ocean or or whether it's you know deaths in custody for Aboriginal people, whatever it is, right? Um, what's also needed is the emergence of a kind of collective imaginary where we understand that there are certain key tasks that we're going to have to take on. Mm-hmm. And I would say front and center is disempowering the billionaires. You know, in other words, disempowering the elite of the capitalist class that um, apparently is prepared for the world to burn so long as they have their, their bolt hole with, with all of the mod cons somewhere in New Zealand. Or mm. you know, mm. And putting them under pressure so that they split more and more and you get more billionaires who come on the side of the people, in other words. Like it's, not, it's not just a question. And what are they going to do? Then what? What's their what's their the action that that you would recommend or well, believe that they should take? A big part of it is is the re-engineering of the whole economic system, so that it's not a mindless machine, which is implicitly dedicated to just turning nature into commodities and and turning human beings into you know more or less cannibalized parts of, of this you know this virtual techno space um, and you know you, you would need to be an economist who's worked through the history of various attempts at disempowering the ruling class uh, and who has a sense of the political economy of those problems to, to come up with concrete options, you know, how should, how should society be reorganised? But we, yeah, there's no way through without, re, without tackling the, the power of those who have accumulated massive amounts of money because that's, in this kind of a world, that translates into political power, ideological power, cultural power, etc. And, and those people, they have a, a very particular interest which is reproducing the system more or less as it is. 